Welcome to Living on Purpose. I'm Mark Pumphrey, along with my co-host, Dr. Christy Stewart, coming to you from the Circle City, Indianapolis, Indiana. And today we have guest Dr. Wesley Bishop. He's an American historian and a visiting professor at Marion University, and his areas of expertise are in social movements, labor history, and American political thought. So you got a lot of accolades going on there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, and today we want to talk about ethics and morality and history. We've kind of talked about it in one of our other shows, kind of from a morality perspective or Mm -hmm. a cultural perspective. But today we want to look at a historical perspective on how those things change and stay the same and the things that we normalize and we don't. Kind of based on what, kind of Mark, what you say all the time is that you can't take a moment of history, a time, a, a specific event, and then plop it into another time period and then put a judgment on it. Right. Because that's really not fair in our time or in their time because things change over time. Do you agree with that? Yes. Yeah, so whenever you are doing a historical study, history, people often think history is the past and it's not. History is not the past any more than, than the natural world is science. History is how we understand the past, just like science is the way that we understand the natural world. And so when we think about history, we are actually taking our time period, us, present actors, Mm -hmm. we're asking a series of questions, and then we're asking those questions to a past period. And so when we do that, we have to understand that we're actually having a conversation with another past period. And so Mm -hmm. when you have that framework in mind, then you begin to understand that the questions that you're asking that past period are going to answer those questions from a particular mindset. And so you can't superimpose then what you think about that on a past period because you're always going to be frustrated at that point. And what your historical study is going to come away with is not really understanding how the past was, but instead you're just going to make a judgment call, right? You're just right. going to, you're, I mean, so it becomes kind of preachy. And uh, there's actually a, a term for this in historical studies, and it's, it's a fallacy. It's called presentism, where we um, only study the past purely from the point of view of our understanding and very much from a point of view of that we are going to use the past to make a political argument. So um, David Sahat has written a really great book about this on the, on the Founding Fathers, um, or the so-called Founding Fathers, and he, and he shows how that people in the present, right, go to the past and to the, to the founding generation, the establishment of the republic, and they basically take their ethics, their politics, right, and try to superimpose them on people like Madison and Washington and Jefferson, and it simply does not work because, I mean, they, I mean, even though there's a similarity there, they are dealing with a whole other host of issues, right? So instead of trying to actually make a moral judgment, which I do think happens, right? We can talk more about that. That is, a, that is an inevitable byproduct that you're eventually going to have a moral judgment about the past. Right. But you cannot then wonder what, like, if you're looking at someone like Thomas Jefferson, like, how could he do this? It's like, it's very easy to figure out how he did this. He's an 18th century slave owner right. from Virginia, right? He's an aristocrat. It's like, that that will actually explain to you why he's doing that, right? He's not he's not a 21st century political figure. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the things that they said, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the people would never say today or in that context. Well, there's a completely different way of thinking about the world. I mean, like, you know, Madison at the Constitutional Convention literally talks about how they need to have a constitution because if they don't, poor people will rise up and take away the property of the wealthy. He says this. <laughs> he says this at the convention. And so people are like, I, when I tell my students this, they're like, what did he say? I was like, yeah. I was like, he's an aristocrat from Virginia. Like, it's like, this is, again, no, you obviously, everyone's going to have an opinion about that. Like, wow, I don't know how I feel about that. But at the same time, it's okay to have that judgment on it or to think about that. But you need to understand it from the 18th century, why he was able to say that and why he was able to think that. 
And don't we do that, though? I mean, and not just in our um, politics, but in, in history overall, even our own personal history oh, that we've yeah. lived through. Mm-hmm. We kind of take a moment of someone else's time or somebody, even an act that they did yesterday, Oh, and, look at and it, put so a judgment on today. I mean, right? Yeah. Oh, exactly. Our, par- our parents are grandparents. Right? Yeah, I was like, oh yeah. my gosh, how can you think that way? Because nobody thinks that way. Well, that's not true. People did think that way. And they had reasons for thinking that way. Right. And see, that's where I kind of lose track of that. Because, I mean, when we normalize something, you know, civil rights, uh, women having the right to vote, and we were just talking about this off air, people then tend to think that their whole world was going to collapse at the time. America was not going to be the same, and everything was going to change. And my argument was, well, it didn't. But then you actually had a new take on this. The thing is, is when when past actors have said, if you abolish slavery, right, that will be the end of the United States, or if you allow for uh, voting enfranchisement of African Americans or women, or you you know you give power to to a working class person to negotiate their wage, you know they you know you get this. This will be the death of America. This will destroy America. And your point is well made, right? Like no, the United States does continue as a country, continues as a nation, continues as a political entity. But what does change is the dynamics of power. So in some sense, they're not wrong. These reactionaries are not incorrect. So like John C. Calhoun, right, argues clear up until to the day he dies before the Civil War that, you know, if you do away with slavery, there goes the South and there goes the country. He's not wrong in the sense that once you do away with slavery, right, you have actually empowered people of color, right, to be equal citizens in the United States. And so the society that John C. He, John C. Calhoun saw himself as defending and the society that he wanted to see expanded is ended, right? I mean, that, that does actually end. So he was like, this is absolutely. the death of America. What is the death of a type of America that he wanted to see come into existence and be and be preserved? That is a absolute true point. I, that's what I thought. I was like, well, America didn't end, but America did end for what they thought. Their America paradigm. Would. Exactly. Right. So yeah, I could definitely see that. But when we go generations into the future, we can't even comprehend that because it's it, it wasn't... It, we're not exposed to things like that. So I think that that's what's real hard for people when they do put judgment of past history mm-hmm. in today's purview. Because it's like, yeah, it was a different time. Slavery, civil rights, uh, women getting the right to vote, things of that nature. I think that that's what we tend to do. Oh, that was just a terrible time. Well, it was it for was. the people that were marginalized and suppressed, but it was a great time <clears throat> for the people that were in power generally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there, I, I just finished writing a review for for a magazine on this. This great new book. I mean, your listeners, I highly recommend it. It's called Confessions of the Fox. And what it does is it goes back and it looks at this historical figure called Jack Shepard, um, who lived in, it would have been, I think it was like the early 1700s, I think is, is his time period. And he was a thief, right? So he was a, he was an escape artist, right? So he was arrested several times, escaped from prison, and was eventually executed. And so what this book does is it tells the story of Jack Shepard, and this is not the only time this has been done, but tells the story of Jack Shepard from Jack Shepard's point of view. And so when you, if you read this novel, right, and, and it, takes, it takes some historical uh, liberties, right? It's a, it's a work right. of art, and it imagines Jack Shepard um, as a what we would consider, say, a trans man, right, a transgender individual, because all of the historical records show that Jack Shepard was slightly build, right, was slightly effeminate looking, 
And so this author, right, kind of taking creative license, imagines Jack Shepard, right, this, this master thief as a trans man. And so what that novel does, though, that's so great, is that if you take um, our understanding of the 21st century of gender, sexuality, um, that, you know, people just because they're poor deserve dignity, right, and you superimpose that on that past society for the people who were in charge, right, they would have looked at you and like, what are you, what are you talking about? What are you talking about that we actually need to respect people's gender expression, as a right, like, I don't even know what, what are you, I don't even understand what that means. Like, what are right. you talking about? But if you look at it from the point of view of the people who experienced that, who would have been classified now as transgender, right, gender-bending people, mm-hmm. um, and you said, hey, in the 21st century, we have this idea, those people say, yes, yes, like, that makes perfect sense, right. like, this thing that you're talking about. So when we, this is the thing that has to be, that has to be stressed, is that when we make a judgment call about the past, right, we're not off, no, it's not always the case that we're superimposing our ideas on a past society, but that we're going back to a past society and we're finding people who were not privileged in the historical record and we're finding sympathy with them. Okay. And they would have uh, certainly agreed with us. That, yeah, that totally but it was agree. just such a minority of the time, right. generally. But and then the and the general culture did not under did not understand this. So like I mean like what we would consider a cisgender person, right, literally has no like no understanding of what you're talking about, right? And right. so in the same way that like if you go back into you know the US has this very, very troubled legacy of, of racism, right, to put it mildly. And so if you go back and you talk to somebody about full political equality for people of color in a past society, they might have trouble understanding that. But I can tell you, people of color would have no under, no trouble understanding that, right? And so, and this gets into the ethics and morality of history, right? You don't want to superimpose an idea from your time period on a past society, but at the same time, you do have a moral obligation to the historical subjects that you are studying. And if a person has been marginalized or oppressed, right, or violence has been committed against them, and we see that as an injustice, I feel as a historian and just actors in the present, we do have a responsibility to sympathize with them, to tell their story, um, and to actually make sure that they, we show that their lives mattered, right? They that lived, we learned from that. Right, that they existed, right? That they were there, right? That they that they were, they had dignity, you know what I mean? And that we should actually identify with that. I guess that's what I'm talking about is that we did learn something from it. But you're right. The people in, at the time, it was going to change everything for them. But if we know anything about this country, we know that it has to progress. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's where I... I, I when I see these things come um, or unfold, it's like, this is just a progression, right? I mm-hmm. mean, it, it, this is what we do. This is how we are. But we fight it so hard. I mean, it's just like this uphill battle. So why can't we look back and say, yes, I understand from their point of view, that was going to change everything for them. But think about your children's children. You know, would this be a better society because of this? Mm-hmm. Well, and, but I think those people at those time periods, and even people today, would some would say, well, obviously that is a progression of good, but some people think that it's not. Some people right. would think that's a progression of bad, especially if they're the ones losing power in that, you know, right. if they're... A monopoly you know, of power, right? right? Right, exactly. I'm fascinated to see what happens with this. Um, so just this past week... I think it was either, I don't know if it was the city of Cleveland or the city of Toledo, some a city in Ohio, basically voted to give full political, or give some political rights to Lake Erie, right? Uh, did you, have you guys seen uh, this? Uh, right, so it was that they voted, right, they actually voted to say that the lake, right, you, that you, if you polluted it, right, or you basically assaulted it, right, like in these kind of sense of like a person, right, that the, the these that this lake, right, actually has some political and civil liberties. 
And I was reading this. I was like, this is fascinating, right? This is absolutely fascinating to me. And because there's a precedent for this, right? There's a long precedent for this in treating corporations as quote unquote people, right? Like not in the sense like no no court system has ever thought that like Wendy's has a heartbeat, you know what I mean? Or anything like that. Right. But that, well, as from a business perspective, they are their own entity. Exactly. Yeah. Though. They're an entity that has standing in the courts, right? right? That has a legal interest, right? And so we understand this, that not what we would consider a non-human actor, right, would have certain political and civil liberties. And what happened in Ohio was so fascinating. I'm so, so excited to see where this goes, is that this idea of democratic rights has now been expanded once again to a natu- an actual natural resource. And so, again, this is just me thinking ahead. I could be completely wrong about this. Historians always are, right? So whenever <laughs> we think about the future, we're always wrong, right? But, like, I'm so excited to see that if this is possible, right, if we start extending concepts of civil and political rights to non-human actors, and like I said, we do it with corporations and we do it with animals to a certain degree. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. If we do that, then that is an expansion of democratic rights in a way that we hitherto have not really thought about. And as a result of that, right, there could be a scenario 300 years from now when our descendants look back on this and say, how on earth could people in that time period, right, have not thought about a lake or the planet or the rainforest, right, with civil and political liberties? And the thing that that generation is going to have to struggle with is that it's going to be really complicated because they're going to be able to come back to our time period and find environmentalists, right? And find, like this this podcast, right? They're going to be able to find people talking in our time period about the promise of what this is, but then compare it to what we actually did. Like, like you know, after this, we go right. and get in our cars that run on fossil fuels, right? We drink our water from plastic, plastic. bottles, right? Yeah. And so it's like, how do you then, you know, square away with the society knowing that they're probably not doing it correctly, but they're still doing something wrong, right? So how do you, and, and if that, if you can take that framework, right, then you can begin understanding the dilemmas in other historical periods as well, where like, where you go back and you see that there are people during, during slavery in the United States where they're saying, this is wrong, but we're still going along with it. And so like how, how it becomes a, not to, not to spare any judgment on them. Slavery is horrible. The people who, who argued for it, I mean, should be judged harshly, but the same sense, right? it begins to put into a context that this is not a, a failing just of individuals, but it is an actual larger social failing. Well, and it takes time. Right. You know, I mean, we, we give well, the lake true. its power, and then it may take 10 years before we get right. away from the bottles. Right. You know, right. and because partially, the, you know, we're used to it. We're comfortable with it. Right. You know, we can sort of see, you know, like the animal thing, you know, it's okay to tie, tie my dog outside because that's just my dog, but... Well, no, I don't want all the pandas to be gone in the world. So we can put restrictions on hunting pandas, but we're not going to put a restriction on hunting deer. Right. Because we we then justify it based on our paradigm, as we've talked about at the time. And But those things change over, slowly change over time. Mm-hmm. But it usually takes some kind of initiative, some type of this is the first movement towards right. that in the long run. That makes sense. Because, yeah, I guess it is all about... How you justify something. So as a historian, that must be the hardest part is separating people's emotions from the facts. Right. You know, I mean, because even in our time period now, we have a lot of emotions that I'm assuming 50 years from now will then turn into some kind of facts, you know. So how do you separate that when you look at something, uh, the women's movement or uh, civil rights or anything like that? How do you separate the facts from the emotion? Is the emotions what started it and then the facts came later? Or mm-hmm. were the facts always there 
and it just stirred up the emotion. Well, so facts are are interesting. I mean, you can define facts in history in many different ways, but typically what historians think of as facts are, you know, that the Constitution was written on a certain date, right? You know, July 4, 1776 is the day that the United States declares independence and the Declaration of Independence is, you know, made public. That's a fact, right? That is a historical fact. Now, what does that mean, right? What What is the actual significance of that? You know, if you ask most Americans, it's uh, it's a patriotic good thing, right? Mm-hmm. But I can tell you if the American Revolution Revolution had failed, it would have been seen as a document of treason, right? And it would have been a dark day in, in the colonies. So the facts are important, but they are often minor, right? They are a, oh, okay. they are a minor part of the broader historical understanding because, again, if history is a conversation between the present and the past, we'll study all the facts in the world, but the way that we organize those facts into a broader understanding or a paradigm, like you're saying, right? I mean, this is what a paradigm is. It's a it's a way of thinking in a certain time period. Those are shot through with ethics, morality, feelings, emotions, right? And so what you have to do at that point is begin weighing and judging these certain emotions and these certain feelings. And what becomes difficult is that not all emotions and not all feelings are equal, right? They do come from different points of view. I mean, like, so, you know, a John C. Calhoun, right, having his feelings hurt because he can't be a white supremacist anymore, I would tend to weigh that as less significant than someone like Frederick Douglass, whose feelings on a matter, right, about, about human emancipation... I would tend to favor as uh, as more important or more legitimate, but that is coming from. But what, from so, your perspective, but for, from a historian, has to be perfectly honest about this. Like, look, and this is any good historian, right? If you read the introduction, will tell you this is who I am. This is how I got interested in the study, and this is the value judgments that I'm bringing to it. And at that point, right, and so many times, like I, I found, even professional historians are afraid to, to do this because they're like, "Well, I'll get judged, or I'll get my my study will get ripped apart." And it's like that's what you should invite, though. You're like, you're a historian. Right. I have written this, right? I've written it for a particular purpose. I am now handing it to the community of of scholars, right? And you get to judge it. Right, so you get to have a conversation with it, mm-hmm. and so that and you is get perfectly to, fine. You get to write your own if you don't like right. it, exactly, but, and you can respond. To and that. when we're yeah. talking about facts, am I correct in saying that those are based on historical papers and historical mm-hmm. documents? And those historical documents are written from somebody's paradigm sure. at the time, exactly. from their mm-hmm. perspective, mm-hmm. their side. Uh, even if they, you know, what we know about research is there is no way to be completely objective. So even if they are presenting it at the time as honestly as they can, they're still coming from their perspective when they write it. And so they're, it's going to be skewed, you know, even exactly. a fact right. is going to be skewed by the person who wrote it. Right. And so I tell my students this all the time. History is not capital T truth. Never has been, and it never will be. Right, and then there's usually like a you know a smart smart aleck in the class. Like, well, isn't that absolute truth? And it's like, okay, whatever. There's the one absolute <laughs> truth that you can have. Right, is that um, is that it is not capital T truth? Because, and I, I tell them this all the time um, because I have a lot of theologians in my class. I'm like, what is one of the principal requirements of capital T truth? And like, what well, has to be true at all times? I'm like, bingo. Right, and so it's like these people who are writing in their time period have their version of reality. Right. We're writing in our own time period. We have our version of reality. Right. And in our own time periods, people don't even agree with us, right? They don't, right, exactly. and, and people didn't agree with them. We don't even agree with ourselves sometimes. Exactly, right? And then that conversation, like like we're doing this right now, we're having mm-hmm. a conversation, right? Um, this is not, I would argue that this is not to establish a permanent knowledge of truth. Instead, we're doing this to create understanding. And I tell them that often, 
we put a lot of capital on capital T truth because we think that this is like the end all be all. But it's like, and sometimes understanding that's fluid, that's not fixed, right? That's constantly changing. That's that's a lot more powerful to people because that's the basis of wisdom. I mean, that's the basis of actually being able to understand a complex and changing society. Not that I have all of the answers and now I'm going to go out into the world, but instead that I'm a subjective person. I'm going to go out in the world and I'm going to learn all kinds of things. And I'm going to have to figure out some way to act ethically, morally, right? And actually integrate my past understanding into those ethics and those moral judgments. I think that is so powerful what you just said, that it's not about absolute truth, but about understanding. If we could all get to that place, that we don't need to worry about the fact, we don't need to worry about what what is the truth, but we need to worry about how do I understand it? I know that's a struggle for me because I want to know what's the fact, what's the truth, what's the black, what's the white, what's the duality of it, where am I in that? And that really doesn't matter if you can come from a place of wanting to understand it. And if you can understand it, especially from the perspective, looking at it from a historic perspective... And that being, what was the paradigm at the time of which this whatever fact we're talking about existed? And what what judgment do I have on it? And how do I understand it? Because then how can I implement it? Right. Or how can I discard it? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we were talking about figures, political figures and statues and the symbolism that those statues mean. That's really important in that. You know, I mean, it symbolizes something that we want to a lot of times when when there's a statue or um, a memorial of some sort we want to think of that as a good thing and we want to see all the good in that but we have to take a look at what is the other side of that as well we were talking about um, some of the statues in Uh, Charlottesville Charlottesville of you know yeah depending upon what perspective if you're a black man if you're a, a white slave owner your perspective of that statue of what it symbolized Um, from that time period to what it symbolizes now are going to be completely two different things. And neither one is necessarily wrong because Mm -hmm. the facts representing both sides, one would say, are accurate. Well, so what becomes then the issue is that if, you know, for example, and this is the, the, the thing that happens in Charlottesville is horrible, right? I mean, it's horrific. I mean, you know, people die as a result of this. I mean, you have like... Right. like Can you not, explain what we're right, talking yeah, about? So in, we yeah, yeah, sure. So Charlottesville, right, there's a, there's a, a statue of, um, um, of Robert E. Lee. And um, after... So Dylan Roof, um, you know, goes into an, a predominantly African-American church, shoots several of the parishioners, right, including um, including the, the leader of the church, who's also a state senator. And I I apologize. I don't know. Your listeners will have to look. I, the trial has moved forward. I mean, I think yeah. they, they found him guilty, or if not, they, they are. I mean, they're... they're there's, there's no question. There's no question right. that he committed this crime. But what does come out of this is that he is a neo-Confederate, that he believes that he wants, uh, he believes in the, the cause of the Confederacy, um, he believes in the cause of white supremacy, and that he had used symbols like the battle flag of Virginia, that he had used, or was often called the Confederate flag, um, that he had used like these kind of Confederate general symbols, right, that this was the the movement that he was that he was up for, and it was white terrorism, right? That, that's that's what right. he was, that he was pushing. So that happens, and there's a national conversation about what should we do with all of these symbols of the confederacy and what comes from that is people say we should get rid of these um these you know not not that we shouldn't learn about the confederacy but we should not be honoring this past anymore because that's what a statue is right a statue isn't really necessarily there to remember something there's all types of people who don't have statues that we remember in history but when we have a statue or street named after someone or a school named after someone what we're saying is that that person in the past 
exemplify something that we want in the present. And so after this terrorist mm. attack, people say we do not want to to put a privileged position for these for these men who fought for the Confederacy. They betrayed the nation. Um, and they fought to preserve slavery. And so throughout the South, you have this mass movement, right, of taking down the Confederate flags, of taking down statues. And this leads us to the University of Virginia, right, where there's a statue of Lee, and they're talking about taking it down. This is when the American Nazis, um, the alt-right, as they sometimes call themselves, this, this fascist movement, decide to descend on the city um, to actually rally to preserve the statue. And they have the torches, right, and uh, and you get the all of the... tiki torches. The tiki torches, right, <laughs> because Walmart was apparently having the sale on them or whatever, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like, this is lovely, right? And so like, as as they're marching, right, they begin, they, they say, you know, this is a way to unite the right, right, that they're a conservative movement interested in preserving history. But very quickly, they begin chanting anti-Semitic remarks, right? Um, there's counter-protesters there <laughs> on, on campus that they begin attacking. Um, and so the next day, right, uh, people, people of color, you know, typically liberals, leftists, anti-fascists, right, you know, they show up, right, to counter-protest. And at that point, one of the one of the members of and I forget the exact I think it was the American Vanguard or something I he's in Southern Indiana I believe the, the this this Nazi right actually drives his car into a crowd injures several people and murders a young woman that's what we're talking about when we talk about these statues and this was a huge issue when I was at Purdue right because this happened I was getting ready to teach my first class my first American history class right it was like two weeks before this had happened and I show up in class and we're like okay we're going to be talking about the history of the Civil War and how we remember it right and it was extremely raw people had a lot of raw emotions but what I try to tell them is like look Robert E. Lee existed you can do all of these backflips in the world to try to justify what he did whatever right but he's being used as a political symbol right now do you really think that this is the best use of history? So at that point, right, if we're going to be moral and ethical actors, we need to ask ourselves, how is this history being used? What is the legacy that this history has had on other people? So Robert E. Lee might be a hero for white Southerners or people who really love military history because he was a brilliant military commander. But Robert E. Lee fought to preserve white supremacy, and he was certainly used as a symbol of that Moving forward, there's a reason why these statues go up during the rise of Jim Crow and the second Ku Klux Klan, and then also uh, as a backlash to the civil rights movement. That's when the majority of these statues go up, because white Southerners are basically arguing that they're against the civil rights movement, um, that they are for Jim Crow, and that they are against empowerment of African American voters. And so at that point, that statue is no longer just history. It's a political argument. And so as an ethical being, you do have a responsibility to decide how you're going to feel about that political argument and what side you're going to come down on it. Well said. Wow, I gotta say. And you know what it shocks me is like when you're talking about this, how much raw emotion people had about the Civil War. And then when you say, well, it depends on how you're going to use it. And it right there, history has power, man. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it it, it invokes emotions of something that happened 200 plus years ago. And so, I mean, if I take anything from this, that's one thing I am going to take. History has a great amount of power to it. Uh, People rally because of it. And this is what, I guess what bothers me is how many people actually know anything about Robert E. Lee? Mm -hmm. You know, wasn't his sons or maybe even him that he was really against even having a statue of himself or something. Right. You know, I mean, it, cause he said it was a, is a, it was really bad for 
people to symbolize things like that? So, Lee, I mean, and this is what I say, because people, I have students often, and, and just, you know, friends and people that I know who will, like, well, Robert E. Lee said this, Robert E. Lee said that, and it's like, look, this is fascinating. If you want to be a Civil War historian, go look at Lee's papers. He's been a much-researched figure, right? Mm-hmm. What I often tell people is, like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't actually matter what Robert E. Lee really wanted out of any of this, because what, I mean, I can tell you right now, Robert E. Lee wasn't a member of the American Nazi Party, and that's who's rallying in support of him, right? So, like, that is how the symbol is being used, right? So people are like, right. well, Robert E. Lee said this once, so that makes him seem to, I was like, I don't, I don't care. And nobody, really, nobody cares in the present right now. That's not what we're discussing here, right? Because what we are discussing is a political argument. And what the the fascists were doing was trying to use, well, I mean, not, not even trying, because it's not a hard stretch to get the Confederacy in line with this, is that we should have a nation that privileges people on the basis of race and that empowers people on the basis of race. And Robert E. Lee is certainly tied to that. No matter what he said, no matter how great he was with his family, that is the political movement that he mm-hmm. was tied to. We will never be able to change that, right? We And that's the point of like imposing a morality clause on, on, on the past. We will never change Robert E. Lee. We will never be able to get right. him to change that's his it. mind. But what we but can do, we do want, but do we want to make that as a symbol to our a, present? Exactly. Do right. we want to take his legacy and say that's who we are in the present? And that's what's deeply troubling, right? And I would argue, no, we do not, right? We want to learn from Robert E. Lee, but he, we do not want to be him, right? We do not want to be a general, right, who had taken an oath to to uphold the Constitution, who decided to overthrow the government, right? Tried to overthrow the government, mm-hmm. um, so that he could maintain his system of power and privilege because of his race in the South. And people always like, well, they were fighting for states' rights, right? They were fighting for for their liberty. Well, how do you like that? That is so that is so one sided because they are not fighting for liberty. There's entire groups of people in the South who are going to be held in bondage permanently, right? So he is actually fighting for oppression here. I mean, it's like there's just no two ways about this. Uh, it only makes sense if you assume Americans are white, right? If they're white, upper-class people, then you can say that he's fighting for liberty. If you imagine America as a multiracial, diverse nation, Robert E. Lee is simply not fighting for that, right? Because the system that he would have ended up preserving, if he had if he had been victorious, right, would have empowered people on the basis of race and held people in bondage on that basis. And to me, again, I see these statues like that's a that's a terrifying political movement, and we should really question why we feel that we should be honoring that, not not learning from it, but actually saying that this is something that we should be we should be emulating in the present. Good point. I got to tell you, it's a very good point. When you're sitting over there thinking about it, you're honoring or paying homage to something that was not a good time in history. You know, you're not saying, well, because we, he was a great general. Well, again, <laughs> like to your you point. I mean, it's like, I mean there, there are people in the Nazi <clears throat> party who are, quote unquote, great generals who know how to run a military. There, are, there were generals in the Japanese military during World War II who were great generals. There were there were British right British generals who fought against against Washington and, and the and the colonies right I mean you get people like George Hamilton right who is a brilliant diplomat and military commander where's his statues right right like, I mean we don't have statues of him down in Vincennes when he fights George Rogers Clark why 
why did you erase that history? Because it doesn't it doesn't suit a certain political argument, right? right? So it's like this isn't really about memory, right? This isn't a, this is about arguing. It's a moral argument, right? And that's really what we're seeing here. And so that's why morality and ethics, not so much these factual based questions, right? Did this happen, right? But it's what do you want to do with that history? How do you want to use history to actually advance the cause of justice? Or advance any political movement. I would have never thought of it like that. I mean, not that I'm a big Robert E. Lee fan or care that his statue. Well, is that's just one example. Right. I mean, we, yeah. can, we can go probably endless examples. But, you know, in this show, we talk about symbolism all the time and how important that is in our everyday life. You know, those symbols that represent something to us, whether it be this statue or a fact or a flag or. Any of those things, yeah. but I think that is a really powerful thing of, of how do we take the history of what we believe the fact to be, because that can, again, be different based on your perspective, and how do we want to symbolize that in our world today? Time, the only place we can change, the only place we can grow and live is in this moment. We don't mm-hmm. live in the past, and we don't live in the future, we only live in this moment. But we have to take those things and learn from them but if we're not even trying to understand them, we're right. not going to do very well at learning, and we're certainly not going to do very well at implementing mm-hmm. if we don't take in both sides of that perspective. Mm-hmm. And Because I think that we do, instead of saying, oh, it's bad, well, we don't know why it's bad. We just know it's bad. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We need to do, dig a little bit deeper because maybe we won't think it's bad. Maybe we'll think it's terrible. We don't know <laughs> unless we actually look into... Right. What what was the perspective at the time? And taking that, we can then look at what is our perspective today? Mm-hmm. Have we learned? Have we grown? Are we, you know, quote unquote, better today? And how do we move forward? How do we implement this? Because we can only we can only live today. Exactly. And that that becomes history as morality and ethics, right? So we study history, not just so that we can learn the facts of the past, although that's part of it, but we study history so that we can actually have a more informed and better present, right? So that we can actually take that knowledge and apply it to our actions in the present. That absolutely does make sense. And I got to say, you did prove the one thing about facts. There are alternatives to them. (laughs) But I mean, yeah, I mean, if you sit there and you think that you have a paradigm to these things and they're not facts, they're just points of view. Now, let me ask you this. When we're talking about their or they, you know, what they thought, we're talking about the people that actually have some sort of historical documents. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about the everyday folk. Mm-hmm. And but is it the everyday folk that does tend to change history or is it the political powers? When we're talking about civil rights or we're talking about Great women's question. movements. Because we talk all the time that one person can make a difference. Right. From a historic perspective, do you say, what do you think about that? Yes, I, absolutely. Um, one person can absolutely make, make a difference. And so, but, you know, that's not often the case, though. I mean, it's, it's a situation, right? It's much more complicated than that. So, like, you know, you look, people like to look at, like, Rosa Parks, right? Like, you know, Rosa Parks makes a huge impact. She's one person, right? But there's an entire movement around her. I would also point out that governments and social movements and societies are made up of series of individuals. So, yes, an individual can make a change and can make a difference. Um, that is something that is absolutely true. Uh, but it's not often just this one person who's leading the charge, but it's a series of individuals dedicated to something. So, But it does start with individuals, if, if that makes sense. Right. So kind of a perfect storm. Right. You have to have the right person during a movement. Right. 
you know, that's one thing we talk about all the time in the world that we live in today. Where is that person coming from kind of going to lead through this place that we are currently? Mm-hmm. And that that's that's interesting. And I, I guess I never really thought about looking through history through a, a different scope like that. I mean, you know, you read it in high school or you read it in a textbook and it's a textbook, so therefore it's right. Or an encyclopedia. Right. So this is the point of view. And well, this I, is the only point of view. Yeah, well, I think we look at, you know, okay, history is a fact. This happened in 1875, I don't know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But we don't think of it that that's based on a historic document that was written by someone who may or may not have had a bias about what happened in that, you know, 1775. And I, I, I don't know if anybody would want to go down that route, but when you sit over there and you think about history, there's a whole history to that history. Yes. Right. And- <laughs> there you go. That's a great way to say right. it. Well, it's called historiography. I mean, so like, you know, this is one of the first things that historians are trained in is not just how to do archival research and not just how to write an argument, um, but also to actually sit down and read the historians who have... Re- so if you're interested in the question of the Pullman strike, right, and the labor movement, if you're interested in that, what you do, the first thing you do is you sit down and you read all the, his- you know, as many historians as you you can, right, that, that pertain to you. You read how they have, have discussed this. And what you do in your study is you say, hey, this is who I am. I'm, I'm studying the Pullman strike. And I am interested in it because of X, Y, Z. Here's my questions. And here's what other historians have said in the past. And so then a really good historian will then offer your historiography, right? Like, you know, in, hmm. in 1900, this is what a historian said. In 1920, this is what a historian said. Uh-huh. And then they will contextualize all of those different historians, right? And like, this is why they were saying X, Y, and Z, right? And so at that point, then the person reading the historical study won't only just find out the quote unquote facts about it, right? And they won't just find out your interpretation, but they'll also see how that understanding developed over time and how that history that understanding either there are some aspects of that understanding that stayed consistent and there are some aspects of that understanding that changed drastically based on the paradigm at the time of the person that was writing it exactly so their perspective so yeah i'm I'm working on a book right now on coxie's army of 1894 and what that was was the first march on washington and i can tell you the way historians have thought about that has changed depending on what time period they're in. So there's one of the first studies that's written on is in the uh, 1920s before the uh, Great Depression. And the historian who studied the first March on Washington, which was a jobless march, right? These workers had shown up asking for benefits from the federal government. The federal government should get involved because of this depression that happened in 1893. Um, And the federal government said, nope, (laughs) and arrested everybody (laughs) and kicked them out of the town, right? Um, And so in the 1920s, this historian sits down and is studying this. And he goes, these guys are nuts, right? It's like, yeah, 1893 was bad, but look how great... The economy is right now because it's the roaring 20s, right? Mm. Everything was fine. Man, they overreacted. And like literally, it's like a year or two later after the study comes out, the Great Depression hits, and everyone's like, wait, wait, let's uh, let's, <laughs> re- let's rethink 1894 <laughs> and, and the March on Washington for job benefits, right? And so after the Great Depression and the New Deal, Coxie's army takes on a whole other meaning at that point. Wow. And so that you can see literally how those people are writing in their time period, right? drastically impacts them. And I, and I say this in the study. I'm, I'm very upfront. I'm like, look, I was graduating college in 2007, 2008 when the recession was hitting. Um, and I can tell you right now that had a huge impact on how I think about the state and the economy Absolutely. as I'm entering the job market for the first time, right? And the economy literally could crumble, right? It's like that impacted how I mm-hmm. think about this. And so you, reader, either in my period or future readers, need to understand this is the point of view that I was bringing to it, right? So you can accept it, you can agree or disagree with me, 
But that's where this is coming from. You need to look at the evidence and make your own make your own judgment call at that point. Fascinating. If we could just all do that a little bit more in our own life, Mm -hmm. I think we would be so much better off. And I think no snap judgments. I mean, we would be (laughs) so less frustrated with our current state of affairs, regardless of the side that you're on. If we could just do that, do you think we're getting worse at that? Do you think, in your opinion, as a historian, have people been so rigid? As we are today, is this normal? Uh, this might not be like the most uplifting answer. Yes, I think it's completely normal. I mean, like okay. we like like this idea of like a post truth or all, you know alternative facts. I, I this is again just my opinion on this, right? I mean, studying the 19th century, um, and people are like oh, alternative facts, post truth. This is a horrible society that you know. This is something that just now came <laughs> in the 21st century. It's like. <laughs> It's like, okay, well, let me <laughs> let me tell you about the 19th century newspapers um, and what they pass for journalism, right? Because it's a, um, uh, it, it is it is not. Uh, if, uh, this is just my opinion. I think people today are actually much better at this. I mean, really? a, a, actually, much better at understanding kind of the nuances of propaganda. The thing is, though, that you have to keep in mind: people are politically invested in things. D- Donald Trump, right? Obviously, is what you know, this is the, the the issue, right? When his uh, when Kelly on, uh, Kelly and Conway says alternative facts, people are like, oh my god, right? This has never happened before. It's like, yeah, al- there's another word for alternative facts. It's called lies, right? right. <laughs> I can tell you right now, this is not the first president that's ever told a lie, right? It's right. like, it's like, like this is not the first time, and I don't mean to be a cynical here. It will not be the last time, right? right? right. And so, and so at that point, no, I really don't think there's anything that exceptional to it. The I, I would say the difference though is that there are certain political groups who are more empowered, right? So those lies don't matter as much, right? So yeah. like you have the electoral college and you have gerrymandering, right? So this actually is what keeps I think the Republican Party in power. Um, now, again, you can agree, or do, if you're a Republican, you're like, well, yeah, what? we won the election, we get to write, draw the districts, and the Electoral College is in the Constitution. You're absolutely right. That's the system that we have, right? And so you have every right to continue fighting for that, right? And you're going to get opposed to it, right? But that's actually what's keeping, that's what's keeping people in power, right? I mean, right. Donald Trump does not actually win the popular vote. So this is not a problem, if you see this as a problem, right? This right. is not a problem with the masses, right, believing a quote-unquote alternative fact. He lost by several million votes. It's that the Electoral College actually empowered him. And so to me, if people are actually want a change in the system, I would encourage them not to look so much to to culture, cultural norms of like alternative facts and post-truth. I would encourage them to actually look at the historical record at how state power gets constructed um, yeah. Because that's actually what empowers the state, right? right? It's like, I mean, nobody's, the government's not going to come talk to us after the show and say, oh, by the way, what should we do, right? We only get to do that during voting or mm-hmm. when we're actually in a social movement. Um, so it's the actual, the electoral college and the election process that actually determines state power. And so if you want to yeah. see a change that, you actually have to change that structure. Yeah, we did a whole show on the whole gerrymandering right. thing. So if anybody's interested in that and you go back and listen to that, I forget what it was called. It was around election time. So. Right. Well, Dr. Bishop, thank you again so much for coming in and doing the show. Again, fascinating, far more enlightened than what I was before. So <laughs> thank you. And thank you guys again for having me. I really appreciate it. Wow. What a great conversation. Absolutely. You know, I learned so guy. so many things I had not even thought of. I know. I it, When you're sitting over there and you're thinking about these things and you just have a little bit different perspective, it opens up a whole new way of thinking, doesn't it? It does. You know, I mean, the facts in history are not about the absolute truth but that they're about understanding and how that we use history to move forward. How, what do we want to be in the present? Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, yeah, that makes sense. I guess I never really thought about 
that concept that a fact is really written from a bias of somebody from an archive that they wrote it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I just never, I guess, you know, I never thought about that. I thought a fact is a fact. It happened in 1876, so that meant it happened in 1876. Well, <laughs> I, my, I, I think differently <laughs> as I sit here right now than I did uh, an hour and a half ago. Absolutely. I, do, I don't think I'm ever going to go, well, you know, history dictates anymore because it doesn't Really? It doesn't really know. <laughs> but the, the, the fact that the history has power and that it's a relationship or a conversation mm-hmm. between our present and our past rather than some absolute truth of something that happened, that it's more of a conversation based on perception of the two people having the conversation. Right. And it's kind of... It makes a, sense. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of like that story that, you know, that you're telling and... But it is perspective. Again, I man, that is that's big eye opening thing for me. I haven't, I didn't, I've never taken a lot of history courses, uh, so no, this I never was all, did This was all really kind of new to me. It I liked it though. So we're about out of time for this show, and we have some great news. Starting January first, twenty twenty two, you can find our show at livingonpurposepodcast.com. or any of the podcast platform like Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher. Just search Living on Purpose Podcast and subscribe to the podcast or look us up on Facebook and give us a like and let us know what you want to add to this new show. That's right. So live every day of your life. On purpose. On purpose.